This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Coming up on today's show, some big political news in our province and our country, a new cabinet in Ottawa, and we have the results of those referendum questions from last week. We'll break it down with Dr. Lisa Young. We are living through the golden age of junk science, and it's killing us. And believe it or not, last year, parents gave their adult kids more than $10 billion for down payments on homes. $10 billion. It's a busy day for politicos in our country and our province, uh, of course, starting with the new cabinet being named in Ottawa and, you know, reading in the tea leaves what might happen there, what it means for our province. And then, of course, we have these referendum questions, the results of which were just released. If you didn't hear on the news, daylight saving, no, not going to happen by the narrowest of margins. 50.1% of Albertans saying no, leave things the way they are. The other question, equalization, yes, Albertans back having that removed from the Constitution, okay? So uh, that was about uh, 62%, roughly, voting in favor of that. So let's dig into these issues a little bit. We're going to chat with Dr. Lisa Young, a political science prof uh, in Calgary. Uh, Dr. Young, thank you so much for joining us again. always appreciate your time. My pleasure. Let's start with the federal cabinet and some of the things and how it might apply to uh, the province of Alberta. There was a lot of speculation as to whether we would get one or two cabinet ministers. You've got Canada's fourth and fifth largest cities would seem to be a good reason. I think there's like six from Toronto, but we get one from Alberta. George Chahal not getting in. Why do you think that is? Is it because of the investigation that surrounds him right now? I think that's a pretty good bet that uh, the the federal government, that the Trudeau uh, government decided that they didn't want to appoint him to cabinet when there was the possibility that he was going to be charged with an offense and then he would have to be removed from cabinet. So, you know, is it possible that he'll end up in cabinet later on? It is, but for now, um, you know, just one cabinet minister from Alberta. Yeah, which is Randy Wassano, who has history with Justin Trudeau. He was in his government before. Uh, he takes over as tourism, so not one of the most impactful portfolios, although important. I mean, tourism is a big part of this country and this province. Yeah, I mean, it, it's not a, a slap in the face. It's not trivial. He's also the associate minister of finance. So uh, I think there's been an effort here to, you know, give him a, a meaningful portfolio, but it's certainly not one of the senior portfolios in the government. The other question, the new environment minister, and it has a lot of people who listen to this show texting me and very concerned. For example, uh, Guy Beau as environment minister is a disaster for all of Canada. We ain't seen nothing yet. Your environment minister is a former Greenpeace, senior member of Greenpeace, uh, an activist at best uh, when it comes to climate change and the environmental movement. Um, Are people in Alberta right to be concerned about what this signals from the federal government? Well, I I think that as an, I think they're right to interpret this as a sign that the government is going to pursue, uh, 
decarbonization and addressing climate change as a high priority. Um, you know, they, they are not putting a moderate in this position. I think in some ways there's continuity here uh, from uh, Catherine McKenna. Um, they, they've also moved uh, the environment minister, the former environment minister into uh, natural, natural resources. resources. So, you know, and, and this is somebody who uh, has, you know, uh, an interest in um, development of, of hydrogen, in energy transitions. So I think that what we'll be seeing from the federal government is a real emphasis on addressing climate change and thinking about energy transitions. Now, is that bad for Alberta? You know, that's where uh, we, we can sit down and have a debate, right? Um, on the one hand, it's it's not good news for traditional oil and gas. Yep. On the other hand, you can argue that Alberta's future is in that energy transition and that, you know, this is uh, exactly what Alberta needs to be talking about and doing. Um, the other one that I think a lot of people are talking about, Harjit Sajan being taken out of the defence portfolio, we knew that was going to happen, right? I mean, there was no way he could stay where he was. It was remarkable that he was kept as, yes. in that role as long as he was. Yeah. Just what- um, th- there have been just, you know, scandal after scandal. It's it's clear that the the efforts to address the culture of sexism and, and, and harassment in, in the senior ranks of the forces have not been successful. It's clearly time for a new minister to go in and clean house. Before we leave the cabinet, um, anything else Albertans should be aware of? Anything else to leap out at you today was kind of surprising or interesting to you? Well, you know, just on the, the question of, of how Alberta or, you know, if you think about Alberta and Saskatchewan as a bit of a region yep. are, are uh, being addressed. One of the things that I thought was interesting was that the uh, responsibility for um, uh, economic development on the prairies has gone to um, uh, a cabinet minister from Manitoba. And of course, Manitoba is absolutely part of the prairies. But I thought it was interesting that that didn't go to uh, an, uh, to one of the Alberta Uh, MPs. Okay, yeah, interesting there. Okay, let's take a look at the political news in our province, and it's very, very interesting. First of all, um, the equalization referenda. Do you think, um, I mean, it's 62% to about 38%, so it's a clear victory, but I think the Premier was banking on a much wider margin when this all started. Yeah, I mean, I think... (sighs) You know, if, if we can think back to pre-COVID, you know, when when the UCP was first elected, um, you know, I, I think the assumption would have been that this would be, you know, 75 percent or 80 yeah. percent uh, in, in favor. This is much closer. And, you know, I, I looked at the, uh, the the number of uh, votes that, that were cast overall on both sides. Um, and, you know, because the turnout was so low and it's actually... Um, you know, about what the UCP alone got in the 2019 election. Um, you know, so we've got low turnout here and not the result that they thought they were uh, going to get. And daylight saving, I, I can't remember a vote. I mean, I guess the Quebec referendum was pretty close, right around that mark. But man, by 0.1%, that's as close as you can get. Yeah. Absolutely. There is, I think, no mandate here uh, for the government to go ahead and make this particular change. Would have been interesting to see if they had asked a different question, right? Um, you know, yeah. There's a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of talk that uh, there might have been, uh, if a different alternative had been on the ballot, the result might have been different. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. So the final question is, so what do we do? 
with these results. We know the equalization. He got what he wanted. He does have a majority of Albertans saying we want equalization removed from the Constitution. Um, where do we go from here with that? He still needs to try and persuade the rest of Confederation to agree with him, right? Well, yes. And, and I mean, you know, we know that what the Premier, the Premier said various things about what the equalization referendum meant. You know, on the one hand, you know, it, it, is theoretically supposed to uh, trigger a, a, a negotiations about the Constitution. I don't think that's correct or that it's going to happen. Right. Um, but the other argument is that it's leverage, yes. right? Yeah. And, you know, I think if, if we look at the two stories that we've been talking about here today, I, I think that the federal government is perhaps signaling that Alberta doesn't have a lot of leverage uh, at the moment with the federal government. Um, you know, that uh, the relatively... You know, whether they would have taken even a 75 percent vote uh, terribly seriously, Um, the unpopularity of of the premier, the possibility that the government is going to change here uh, at the next election. I I just don't think that we're going to see, you know, cabinet ministers rushing to Alberta to, you know, show that that that. Uh, Alberta is well loved by the government uh, is is likely to be something that we're going to see over the next few months. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. But, uh, you know, I mean, even last week, the prime minister was sort of dismissing the results of the referendum before they were even out. Um, so yeah, I think you're right. Um, Lisa, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate you joining us today. My pleasure. That is Dr. Lisa Young, political scientist from Calgary. Timothy Caulfield here, one of my favorite guests. Uh, Dr. Caulfield, thank you for joining us again. Always a pleasure to chat. Thanks for having me on. You know, you're a guy who studies junk science and misinformation and all this sort of stuff. And you're, is it fair to say you're among, you, you're the world leader in debunking? I think that's fair at this point, isn't it? I mean, Netflix, <laughs> Men's Health Magazine, you're, you're the guy, that, the go-to guy at this point, aren't you? I don't know. I don't know if I'm the go-to guy, but I will say this: I'm, I'm part of a of, of a growing and incredible community that is really, you know, fighting the fight against what I think is one of this era's biggest challenges. And as you said right at the top, that's that's the spread of misinformation, which is absolutely everywhere. I will say this though, Shay, it's, yeah. it's non. It's not it's oh. endless, and it seems to be accelerating. You're absolutely right. You know, you, and I think it, it's God's work that you're doing. And as you say, it never stops. It's exhausting. But is this as bad as it has ever been? Have we ever lived through an era of misinformation and pseudoscience and nonsense, really, like we're seeing right now? You know, I'm going to say it, this is the worst I've ever seen it. Look, you know, misinformation has been with us forever. Yep. You know, probably as soon as human beings started communicating, there was... There was misinformation, but uh, it really has intensified. You know, to be honest with you, in some ways, I think this is worse than the 2016 election when there was, you know, so much uh, of that kind of misinformation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but because this now has become, you know, it's about our health, uh, it, you know, it is literally killing people. And it also has become so tremendously polarized. And we've seen that around things like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. And now we're seeing it around, around the mandates. Uh, and and I think that makes it more difficult to fight it because it really becomes about people's personal identification, right? It becomes their in-group signaling. It becomes about their ideology rather than 
than the science. I still think we can fight fight it. I, I, I'm always very optimistic, but I think it's getting more and more difficult. I think you're right. Um, you, you've authored a new piece called um, The Golden Age of Junk Science is Killing Us for Men's Health Magazine. In the piece, you sort of walk through how we got to this point where it's so abundant and, and as you say, so polarizing. And, of course, social media is is number one. That's where this all started, right? Yeah, I, you know, I'm all often asked that, you know, what's different about today, you know, what's, and there is a lot going on. It's a complex social phenomenon. Yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to simplify it, but for sure, you're right. It's social media is, is the dominant source right now. There's a really interesting study that came out of the University of Alberta not that long ago where they, they tried to kind of quantify um, where the misinformation was coming from. And they said 85% of it sort of has as its, as its origin story, social media. So that really speaks to that point. But you know what the other thing is, and tell me if I'm wrong here as someone who studies this, we also have a lot of unscrupulous provocateurs who recognize the power of polarization and of this misinformation, and they will happily use it for clicks and for clout and for attention and cash in some cases. So it's also they're the ones that weaponize it. They're the ones that turn it into this cause that people are rallying around because, I mean, that's definitely part of it, right? Hey, I, I completely agree with you, and, and um, it's infuriating, it really is, because I think it's often overlooked that a lot of this misinformation is done for the pur- purpose of, of profit, yep. of, of building a personal brand, and, and you're right, they, these individuals are leveraging anger and fear and in-group signaling, as I said before, in order uh, for personal benefit. Yeah. You know, Mercola is a really good example of that. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is another really good example of that. And I can go on and on. And the other, other group are, are these wellness people that have really kind of glommed on to this misinformation train in order to sell supplements and, you know, crazy diets. It, so, yeah, you're right. People are leveraging the noise for personal gains. Um, uh, there's a great part in, in your piece that I think really illustrates how difficult the battle is, where we heard the stories about the COVID infection parties, and you jumped right in, and, and you recognized, okay, this probably isn't true, but it triggers us, right? I mean, this information comes across in such a way that we react with emotion in a lot of cases because it gets our back up. It gets us into the fight. And, I mean, even for people, this is what you do, and it's so easy to get sucked into it. Yeah, I started the piece because I wanted to highlight that I get it. I get it. <laughs> I, get it. Yeah. I sympathize with everyone who's trying to sift through all you know the the nonsense. Um, yeah, this was I don't remember it was it was last summer and there was uh, the, these COVID parties yeah. uh, concerns were circulating and I it, it played to my concerns, it played to my ideology, right? And and I immediately believed it and started ranting against it. And I did a little bit of digging. And found out, you know, this was probably a myth. You know, <laughs> since then, Shay thinks, you know, there's questions about whether it's happening. But, but I deleted the tweet, you know, and I apologized uh, that I have to, and reminded myself to be more careful. So we all, we, it can happen to all of us, right? And we all have to be vigilant. But that's the question: when, when logic and reason and the ability to think through something gets replaced by emotion and ideology, and as you say, it happens to all of us because that's so much easier. Um, it's almost impossible. That's a tough nut to crack, Doc. It, it, it really, it really is because you know we want to believe. Yeah, we want to believe. We want this stuff to you know we've especially if you've kind of committed to a position. You know, maybe you've you've taken on a, a position at your workplace, and this is what your belief, and all your friends know that the, this is your belief. It becomes really difficult to change your mind, and when you see something that might support that position, you know, you go all in and you embrace it. Right? That's our confirmation bias, which is so so powerful. 
yeah, you're you're right. It, it gets very very difficult. Any optimism? Any? Do you got a message of of hope for us, or are we doomed here? Because sometimes it feels like we're doomed. Uh, I, I'll, I'll circle back to what I said at the beginning. You know, the, the good news is there is this growing community, and I've sensed it. You know, I've been studying this for decades, and I've really sensed this growing community. It's a wonderful community that's fighting this information. I've also seen entities like the World Health Organization, you know, Public Health Agency of Canada, the federal government, the provincial governments all take misinformation more seriously, right? Yeah. So that's great news. And we're getting more and more, more and more research is being done on how we can fight it. And and but look, the social media platforms, have got, you know, we're seeing that unfold oh, right yeah. now with Facebook, right? You know, they've got to do more. We need more regulatory policy. So it's going to be a, it's going to be a, a, an ongoing battle. But I'm always optimistic. And uh, we're, we're happy that you're in the fight, uh, leading the charge. Uh, keep up the good work. I don't know how you do it. It's going to be exhausting, but we're glad you're doing it. Thanks, Doc. Thanks so much for the support. Yeah, you bet. That's Dr. Timothy Caulfield, who um, is, like I say, I think he's got to be one of the world leaders when it comes to fighting the never-ending flow of misinformation that we're all inundated with each and every day. And he's really risen to prominence. He's a U- University of Alberta prof and researcher in health and law. And uh, he sort of rose to prominence with a Netflix series called A User's Guide to Cheating Death. Uh, that came out a few years ago. Uh, he's sort of a go-to guy when it comes to trying to be fact-based, science-based, things like that, and dealing with some of the misinformation that comes out there. The cost of home ownership in our country has been uh, steadily going up, and we know it's not cheap. It's definitely not cheap. Uh, it's an issue across the country, and it's something that the political parties were talking about during the election campaign, and it looks more and more like... Getting some help from mom and dad is becoming a pretty key component to entry for many, many Canadians. Listen to this. In the last year, Canadian parents have given their adult children $10 billion. That's with a B, $10 billion for down payments. That's 10% of all the money that was spent on down payments. And almost one in three down payments in this country came with money from mom and dad, which is not available to all Canadians, obviously. It's a big deal. So let's chat about this and find out exactly what this means. And if it's a trend we can expect to see continue. Joining us, we have Benjamin Tal, who is uh, Deputy Chief Economist at CIBC World Markets. Benjamin, thanks so much for joining us today. I appreciate your time. It's a pleasure. Thank you. So let's start with how we got here. Uh, how, how did we get to a point where, for so many Canadians, home ownership is at you know, you need intervention from your parents even to get your foot in the door. How did we get to the point where it became so expensive? Yes, we all know that the housing market is simply unaffordable. <clears throat> and it's not a bubble. You know, 10 years ago, people were talking about the bubbly housing market in Canada. Yep. Since then, house prices went up by 85%. So much for a bubble. This is not a <laughs> bubble. And the number one issue facing the Canadian housing market is the lack of supply. We simply don't have enough supply. We have about 400,000 new immigrants arriving every year. The Canadian population is rising much faster than any other OECD country. At the same time, we simply don't build enough. We don't have enough land to release for home building. That's the source of a problem. It's not demand. It's simply the lack of supply, especially in places like Ontario and BC. That's the thing I was going to ask. We always hear about Toronto and Vancouver, and we know the real estate prices there are astronomical, but does that mean the rest of the country is immune and they aren't seeing these kinds of increases, or is it right across the board, coast to coast to coast? 
Well, it's across the board, but clearly it is exaggerated in places like Toronto that because of regulations, it's basically like an island and Vancouver is an island. Mm -hmm. So you have a situation in which uh, clearly there is a lack of supply and some of it is flexible. You know, you can fix it relatively uh, uh, quickly. It's uh, all kinds of regulations. It's red tape. It's the speed at which municipalities are releasing land land and uh, permits. And that's why I'm encouraged by the fact that for the first time, the federal government is admitting that supply is the issue and they're willing to actually put some money and, and uh, transfer some money to municipalities to, ex- to accelerate the process of releasing land and, um, and permits. Now, parents stepping in and helping out is nothing new. That's always happened, but not at levels like this, right? I mean, this, this seems really high. <laughs> Yes, uh, the numbers are unbelievable. As you mentioned, one out of three first-time home buyers getting help. This help is getting larger and larger. On average, about uh, eighty-five thousand dollars for pay, for down payment. That's the average. Uh, many p- people get much more than that. In addition, you have uh, you know mover uppers, namely people who are not first-time home yeah. buyers getting gift, and this gift is even larger. About ten percent of them are getting that gift. So it's becoming a major issue facing uh, the um, uh, Canadian housing market, impacting it. And the question is to what extent it is adding to home price inflation. And I believe at the margin it does. Tell me about that. How does it impact the housing market when you have this money, uh, this generational wealth being transferred through home down payments? What impact does that have on the housing market? Well, it makes a difference between uh, getting into the market or not getting into the market. It makes a difference between being a renter or home buyer. And to the extent that you are able to get into the market and bid on that house, it means that the price of this house can go up Mm -hmm. because you have the money given by your parents for the down payment. And therefore, it generates demands. And more demands means uh, higher prices. So at the margin, it's not the number one cause. The number one cause, of course, is supply. But at the margin, it does impact the house prices upward. And the other thing I noticed in the report was, and this is kind of surprising, is the pressure that parents are feeling to sort of fill this gap for their kids. In some cases, it's not even just savings or money they have on hand. They're actually going into debt themselves to pass this money on. Yes, there are a few things happening. One is people getting into debt. It's not huge. About 10% of givers, if you wish, are uh, getting into debt, but they are providing help in different ways. For example, we see a significant increase in the number of parents that are co-signing. Basically, they assume mm-hmm. some of the debt in case of default. That's one thing. Another is the investment. We know that a lot of uh, people are investing in real estate, especially in the condo space. And uh, when we talk to those people in focus groups, we try to get a sense of why why are you doing that? Why are you investing? If you look at the cash flow, many of them are in negative cash flow. Basically, they are losing money. They are still doing it. And you know what the number one answer is? Hmm. Because I want my kids 10 years from now to have a chance to still live in Toronto or Vancouver. Therefore, I'm getting into the market now to help them do so. That's another motivation that we haven't seen until recently. So a lot of things happening and the, you know, and it's, the common denominator here is really parents helping kids. Um, is this a trend that you expect to continue then? Like you say, I mean, until supply gets to a point where it sort of evens out with demand, are we going to be in this position where this is going to be the only way into home ownership for a lot of Canadians? 
The short answer is yes. I don't think that Toronto, Vancouver, and many other cities in Canada will be cheaper. Affordability is a crisis, and it will remain a crisis until we deal with the supply issues. And that's something that we have to take into account. And therefore, I'm very concerned about the impact on uh, wealth inequality. The wealth um, uh, gap is uh, widening. It was wide to start with, and now it is widening because if you get a gift, you can enter the housing market. And if you can enter the housing market, you can benefit from future appreciation of home prices. And the mortgage that you're taking is not as big, and therefore you save on interest payments relative to people who don't get the gift. So the wealth inequality, the gap is widening, and that's uh, not a good thing. So when we hear governments talk about a tackling affordable housing and we're going to get a handle on this, is there really anything they can do short of increasing supply? Is there anything we can expect from government to help here? Well, the number one issue is supply, so we have to really, really encourage uh, people to build, and we have to give all kinds of incentives. Okay. The other uh, factor is rent. I believe that the rental solution must be a big part of the affordability solution. We want to create a situation, we have to think about a situation in which you are 35 years old, you are married, you have two kids, and you are renting, nothing is wrong with you. Like in Berlin, like in London, like in Manhattan. Basically, if you encourage this mentality of renting and you encourage Purpose build rental, basically apartment buildings just for rental. I think we can solve some of those issues. Interesting. You're saying it's a mindset that we have in this country where you have to buy a home, you have to buy a home. Whereas you say in a lot of other places, you don't, you just rent. I mean, that's how it works. Exactly. And if you have enough supply of those rental units, their price will not be in the sky and you will be able to have a good life renting and still enjoy life. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, Great stuff. Thank you so much, Benjamin. And I really appreciate your time today. A pleasure. Thank you. That is Benjamin Tao, who is the Deputy Chief Economist at CIBC World Markets. And, and some of you sending me texts as we were going along. Did he just say average down payment, 85000 Yeah, that, that's what this report says. Um, the report coming out uh, yesterday from CIBC Economics. Parents gave their kids more than $10 billion in down payment help over the past year. That is 10% of the total down payments over that time period. Just less than 30% of first-time buyers got this help, which averaged $82,000 on average. $82,000 were the gifts given from parents. And the other thing he mentioned, which was really kind of surprising to me, we, we talk about first-time home buyers, and I think, okay, we can probably see that, but listen to this. Um, when it comes to move-up buyers, okay, so you've already, you're in a home. You've bought a home. You're in your starter home. Um but then you want to move up. Well, once again, um, the gifts to new uh, uh, move-up buyers uh, in Vancouver was $340,000 on average. And in Toronto, it was $200,000. That's the move-up gift. So you're already in a home, which is really, really surprising. 9% of um, Canadians who moved from a smaller home to a larger home received that kind of parental assistance. 9%. You're already in the home, and your parents are coming in to help you out. The average amount in that case, $128,000 gifted from parents to get you out of whatever home you're in and into a new home. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.